Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can please turn to, scroll to, flip to, press Acts chapter 15. We're into the book of Acts. It's in the second half of your Bible called the New Testament. Fifth book in, it's called the book of Acts. And we're going to be in Acts chapter 15. Hey, by the way, if you are new, not just to thrive, but new to church generally, never been to church before, maybe you're coming in from a different faith background or no background at all. You're just kind of curious. We're so thrilled that you're here. And we hope that you find that Thrive is a safe place for you, a place where you can explore some of the questions that are on your mind, a place where we can find hope and community as we start a new week together. Welcome, everybody, to Thrive Church. We're doing a series here at Thrive. It is called To the Ends of the Earth. And this series, To the Ends of the Earth, is us traveling through the powerful book of Acts in the New Testament. And what we're doing is as we're going chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through this powerful book of Acts in the New Testament, is that we are seeing how this movement that Jesus started 2,000 years ago in a place called Jerusalem, how it spreads to other places in the world in such a rapid, amazing way. And as we discover how this message about Jesus starts to impact not just people in Jerusalem, but people all over in different parts of the world, I think in the process, you're going to get an appreciation for what God is doing in your life as well today. Because whether you know it or not, God is working in you. The fact that you're even here is proof of that. And the fact is this, is that as God works in you, there are certain things that we ourselves can do to cooperate with God, to maximize the impact and the blessing that flows from the work that God is doing in and through your life. And that's why we're doing this series called To the Ends of the Earth Through the Book of Acts. Now today, as we travel through the back book of Acts, our travels lead us to Acts chapter 15, and we're going to be in a city called Antioch. Everyone say Antioch. Antioch, Antioch, it's a a city in Syria, and ancient Antioch in many ways resembled this city we're in today, Vancouver, in some uncanny ways. For example, just as Vancouver is the third largest city in Canada after Toronto and Montreal, Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire after Rome and Alexandria. And just like Vancouver is a port city right by the water, Antioch was right by the water as well. It was seen as a gateway city, a gateway to the rest of the Middle Eastern world. It was, like Vancouver, a financially prosperous city. Like Vancouver, it was really into the arts and culture. Archaeologists, they've uncovered things like, you know, public forums and, and, and you know, theaters and even a circus that all testified how much the arts and culture were a part of the city of Antioch. It was also a very sporty city. Lots of athletic stuff going on, although like Vancouver, no hockey team from Antioch has ever won the Stanley Cup. Uh, it's also a very multicultural city. You have people from all sorts of different backgrounds, cultures, countries coming together, living in the city of Antioch. It's also a very spiritual city. If you went to Antioch back in the time of Acts, you'd see that there's all different centers for worshiping different gods, different faiths, different religions. And in fact, other than the city of Jerusalem itself, the city of Antioch played probably the most influential role in the history of the early church as we read it in the book of Acts, is that it's in Antioch where believers in Jesus are first called Christians. It's in Antioch that the first church for Gentile people, i.e. non-Jewish people, gets started. It's in Antioch there where we've got now a mixture of both Jewish and non-Jewish people coming together to worship Jesus together as a son of God at the church in Antioch. 
Antioch, it became a sending place for missionaries. For example, Paul and Barnabas, they were two of the pastors at the church in Antioch, but they would go from Antioch to other places to spread the news about Jesus, and they'd come back to Antioch and report what was going on. So Antioch, the church in Antioch, was like a sending place for missionaries. It was also a place that gave a whole lot of aid and relief. When there was a big famine that, that, that basically devastated different parts of the Roman Empire, it was the Christians in Antioch that got money together and sent out basically a relief campaign to help other parts of the Roman Empire. All this to say that Christianity was thriving in the city of Antioch. And the church in Antioch, it's growing. God is moving. People's lives are being transformed by their faith in Jesus Christ. And then something happens in the church in Antioch that really shakes everyone up and brings a bit of confusion that we're going to talk about today. Let's look at Acts chapter 15, and would you help me preach in this place together by reading this out loud with me right now? It says in verse 1, Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. Go, drop down to verse 5. It says, Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. If you're taking notes today, and I encourage you to do so, the message title for today's message is Christ over culture. Christ over culture. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever experienced culture shock before? You know what culture shock is, right? Where you move to a new country, you start to move to a new city, and it's a different culture that you're not used to, you're not familiar with it. And so there's a certain level of confusion and even anxiety that you experience because you're in this new culture that you're not used to. Have you experienced that before? You know, 20 years ago, I experienced culture shock. What happened was I was getting ready to propose to my girlfriend at that time. Her name is Charlene. And we've been dating for a couple years now, and I wanted to propose to her. I wanted to ask her to marry me. And I thought it was going to be super simple. I thought all I have to do is go to Charlene's parents, ask them for their blessing, and then I would then get a surprise ready for Charlene where I'd maybe sing her a song and give her a ring and ask her to marry me. Hopefully she says yes. And then, ta-da, we are engaged. Congratulations. I thought it was going to be that simple. But... To my surprise, when I ended up asking Charlene's parents for Charlene's hand in marriage 20 years ago, I quickly found out that it wasn't going to be that simple. In fact, what was happening was that they said, okay, well, we know you love our daughter. We know you're excited about my daughter, but I want to let you know this. We have certain cultural requirements that need to be met before you and Charlene can get engaged. And I want to share you just a few of those cultural requirements with you today, and you're allowed to laugh. Turn that you're allowed to laugh. All right, so here it is. Here are a few of those cultural requirements. Number one, there needs to be a wine testing. Not a wine tasting, but a wine testing. In other words, I was supposed to meet my future potential father-in-law in a restaurant, and he was going to test me on my knowledge of alcohol. Uh, and maybe in some ways my capacity to drink it as well. And because I didn't really drink, because I had no idea you know, about all these different wines and spirits and beers that he was talking to me about, I failed that test big time. Failed that test. Second requirement, in addition to the wine testing, there was going to be a Chinese language test where I was going to be tested on my knowledge of 
four character Chinese idioms. And if you're, in case you're wondering, you know, in Chinese language, you know, you know, famous sayings often come in fours, four characters. And I had no idea about Chinese idioms because I didn't speak Chinese. I didn't speak Chinese, I didn't read Chinese, I didn't understand Chinese. I grew up in, of course, a Chinese culture, and I am Chinese, but I didn't speak it at all. And so I failed that test as well. Not just that, but we also had to have a dinner where before the engagement ever took place, the dinner involved both families coming together where the fathers would make speeches and possibly cry during the speech. You know, that's an optional thing. You don't have to cry if you don't want to. And then so they did that. And then we had witnesses who were not, not part of the immediate family who were also present at this dinner to confirm, yes, the dinner took place. And then later that night, I finally got to do my proposal. I take Charlene up to the balcony of my parents' house. I sing her a song. I get down on one knee. I show her a ring. I say, will you marry me? She says, yes. And then we go back downstairs to the living room and there are my future parents-in-law and they're sitting here this way. And they're saying, what happened just now? We don't know what happened. Can you tell us what happened? And I was like, uh, okay. Well, I went upstairs with your daughter. I proposed to her and she said, yes. And then there was an awkward silence for about 10, 15 seconds. And then my future father-in-law, he got up from the seat. He started to clap. And I thought that was maybe the end, but it wasn't the end because the next day they said, okay, now that you're engaged, we need to announce it. We need to announce it in a Chinese newspaper. And so they're like, what's your Chinese name? Uh, sorry, I don't have a Chinese name. You need to get a Chinese name. And so that's in fact the only reason why I have a Chinese name today. It was so that we could put an announcement in a newspaper about my engagement to her, to Charlene. Isn't that incredible? And see, all of this just to marry Charlene. Would I do it all over again if I had to? I would in a heart because that's how much Charlene means to me. Now, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. Don't get me wrong. I love my parents-in-law. They are two of the best parents-in-law in the world, two of the kindest, two of the most loving, two of the most generous, most incredible people that I know. That said, whenever I watch the movie Meet the Parents, I always kind of feel like I can relate to what Gaylord Falker went through with his future in-laws as well. Now, why do I mention this situation where I experienced some major culture shock in trying to propose to Charlene? It's because in Acts chapter 15, we've got these new non-Jewish Christians in the city of Antioch who are going through some major culture shock is that they're excited about their faith in Jesus. They want to follow Jesus. Their lives are being transformed by Jesus. And yet at the same time, you've got these other Christians from 300 miles south in Jerusalem and Judea who go up to their city in Antioch and go, hey, it's great that you love Jesus. It's great that you believe in him. It's great that you're excited about him, but that's not enough because you see, Christianity came from the Jews. Jesus himself was a Jew. And so if you want to be saved, if you want to be part of the family of God, if you want to be real Christians, then you need to follow at least some of our Jewish culture. You need to do what every Jewish male does to identify themselves as being part of God's people. You need to get circumcised. And in case you're not sure what circumcision is, let me show you a video. Right, I'm kidding. There's no video of circumcision. All right. I'm kidding about that. Go and 
Google that later on if you're not really sure, but you need to get circumcised. And not just that, you need to follow what we call the law of Moses, which is the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, i.e. the Old Testament. And there are hundreds and hundreds of rules in the law of Moses that you need to follow. Some say 613 rules to be exact. You need to follow all of them if you want to be saved and want to be called part of the family of God. And so here are these non-Jewish Christians in Antioch who at first are really excited about their faith in Jesus, but they're experiencing some culture shock. They're like, do we really have to go through all of these cultural requirements to believe in Jesus and be called Christians? Is it true that we need to be circumcised in order to be forgiven of our sins, that somehow to be rid of our sin, we also need to get rid of our skin, if you know what I mean? And see, Paul and Barnabas, they're the leaders of the church in Antioch, and they're saying, don't worry about that stuff. Circumcision isn't necessary for you guys. Don't worry about those dietary regulations and stuff. But then there's other Christians from Jerusalem and Judea who are saying, no, 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 you got to follow it all. You got to be Jewish just like us if you want to follow Jesus. And so now we've got some headbutting going on. Now, maybe you're here and you're thinking, oh, here we go again. Here are Christians bickering and fighting about some trivial matter yet again. You ought to keep this in mind. This is a huge question. This is an important question because it goes right to the heart of what the gospel message is all about. It goes right to the heart of the question Christianity is trying to answer, which is what does it take for a person to be saved? If we are separated from God because of our sins, what does it take for us to be forgiven of our sins, to be reconciled to God, to have a relationship with God, to become a citizen of heaven, to have eternal life with God? What does it take? Is it enough just to believe in Jesus or do I have to go through other of these cultural requirements in order to be forgiven? And see, in figuring out this really important issue, the church in Antioch decides we need some guidance here. And so they look to the guidance and counsel of many leaders in the church. Now, before we get into what they said about this issue, I want you to take with you today an important principle that you can apply to your life today, especially if you are in a season right now where you need to make a really important decision. And here is the principle. Write it down today. When making a big decision, get good advice. Seek the counsel of wise people before you decide what you're going to do. Is there a big decision that you're needing to make right now? Maybe concerning your future or your finances, or your career or relationship or something else that's affecting you today. Can I encourage you to really consider one of the lessons we learned from Acts 15, which is get good advice. Because over and over, the Bible speaks about the importance of getting good advice. Look at Proverbs 24, verse 6. It says, it says, don't go to war without wise guidance. There is safety in many counselors. Look at Proverbs 15, 22. It says, it says, refuse good advice and watch your plans fail. Take good counsel, watch them succeed. Let's talk about the importance of getting advice, especially when you're making a really big decision that you're not sure about. See, when you're making a big decision in life, don't quarantine your decision-making process. It's like when someone has got COVID, they're sick, they quarantine, they silo themselves, they cut off themselves from society. But when you're making a big decision in life, don't quarantine your decision-making process. Don't say, I'm going to cut myself from everybody. I'm not going to talk to anybody. I'm not going to consult anybody. I'm not going to ask anyone for advice. I'm just going to try to figure out all by myself and do things based on how I feel and what I think and maybe how I pray. Let me just try to figure it all by myself. No, instead, with the biggest decisions of your life, the Bible says, get good advice. Turn to your and say, get good advice. 
And see, that's what the church in Antioch decides to do. They decide to get some good advice. And so the church leaders in Jerusalem and the church leaders in Antioch, they meet together in Jerusalem to discuss this issue. Now, starting in verse six of Acts chapter 15, we get an inside look at some of the conversations and discussions that are going on in this council in Jerusalem. Why don't you read verse six with me right now? What does it say? It says, the apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Stop right there. What's going on? Is that at this council in Jerusalem, where they're discussing, do Gentile Christians need to be circumcised? Do Gentile Christians need to follow the law of Moses just to be called Christians? Here you've got a guy called Peter. He's one of Jesus' first and earliest disciples, and he begins to share his experience. He's like, you know, and if you know anything about Peter, if you've read the book of Acts, you'll realize that Peter has gone through one of the biggest transformations of anyone who's decided to follow Jesus. Before Jesus died on the cross, before Jesus rose again, here you've got Peter, who's this really inconsistent, unstable, some sometimes very fearful disciple of Jesus, who's most famous for denying Jesus three times before Jesus went to the cross. And yet after Jesus dies on the cross, after Jesus rises again from the grave, after Jesus reveals himself fully resurrected and alive to Peter and to 500 other people over a course of 40 days in different places, different times, Peter goes from being this really fearful, unstable disciple to a fearless preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the message is that when we were far away from God, when each one of us had turned to our own way, something that's called sin, where we all sinned against God, did our own thing instead of God's thing. We separate ourselves from God, such that we could never go back to him because God is holy and we are not. And the penalty for our sin is to be separate from God eternally, which is death. God in his love said, I don't want to be apart from you. I don't want to be apart from you for eternity. So I'm going to send my son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is going to live the life that no one else could live. A life that meets all of God's requirements, a life that only God in the flesh could live. And not only would Jesus live that kind of life on our behalf, but he would also die on the cross to pay for our sins. So the penalty that we deserved, Jesus paid. The debt that we owed God, Jesus paid. It was Jesus who died on the cross to make forgiveness possible for you and for me and to place, to, to show that you can place your trust in all that Jesus is and all that Jesus says and all that Jesus does to show that it's just not some story, some fiction, some faith. Jesus didn't do just that. He also rose again from the grave to show you can place all your trust in Jesus. Will you give Jesus some praise in this place together right now? That's... That's the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's love for us. That when we couldn't reach God, God reached for us by sending Jesus for us. And see, Peter, the same lips that denied him three times are now the same lips that are speaking courageously. This message to thousands and thousands of Jewish people who come to Jesus, come to faith in Jesus. And for the longest time, Peter, he thought that this message about Jesus Christ is something for Jews only. He thought, yeah, Jews are the people that God is focused on. And so when it comes to non-Jewish people, Gentile people, he's like, you know what? God doesn't care about them. Though Gentile people, they're just, you know, impure, unclean, irrelevant to God's plan, God's heart, God's purposes, God's mission. And so he wasn't concerned about Gentile people, non-Jewish people. But over time, as you read the book of Acts, you'll find that over time, God works 
on Peter's heart, starts to soften Peter's heart and help Peter to see that God's heart isn't just for one ethnicity or one people group like the Jews, but it's for every person and all people. And that Jesus was sent to us, not just to die on the cross for the sins of Jewish people, but for every single person on this planet, regardless of your color, your race, your ethnicity, your culture, Jesus is for everyone. And see, Peter, the moment he starts to preach this gospel to non-Jewish people, to Gentile people, he finds that amazingly, these non-Jewish people are responding in equally miraculous and powerful ways. Their lives are being transformed. They're receiving the Holy Spirit. And it goes to show that God saves both Jewish people and Gentile people in the same way. It's not through how well we obey rules or how good we think we are, but it's through the grace and undeserved kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, Peter, he says this, if God saves his people by his undeserved kindness, who are we as Jewish Christians to try to add more requirements to God's salvation plan? Who are we as Jewish Christians? If we couldn't save ourselves by obeying the law of Moses, who are we to try to require Gentile believers to do what we couldn't do ourselves? And see, he says it in verse 10, look at the, read with me right now. It says, now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. And so if you're here today and you're trying to earn your way to God, you're trying to earn your way to heaven, you think, oh yeah, if I'm a good enough person, you know, then maybe I'm going to earn my way to God. Or you think, okay, at the end of my life, you know, I don't need Jesus because at the end of my life, God's going to look at all the good things I did. He's going to wait against all the bad things I did. And he's obviously going to see that I was a really good person. And so therefore he's going to accept me on that basis. If that's what you think is going to happen, guess what? You're going for a huge disappointment because the message of the Bible is this. There's nothing that we ourselves can do to get to God. You can't earn your way to heaven because God is perfect. God is holy. We are not. But the good news is this. While you can't earn your way to God, you don't have to because it's not about what you have to do to get to God. It's what Jesus Christ has done for you. He died on the cross to pay the debt that we ourselves couldn't pay. It's by the grace of Jesus Christ that we can be saved. If you believe that, give God some praise in this place, God right now. Amen. Look at verse 12. It says this. It says, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul, telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. So what's going on? So first Peter, he gets up and he shares his experience about, yeah, God is reaching people among the Gentiles. It's so clear. I see it. I've experienced it. Now, Paul and Barnabas, they're the leaders of the Antioch church. And they're saying the same thing. That is like, hey, when we preach about Jesus to non-Jewish people, to Gentiles, miraculous things are happening. Lives are being transformed. And so they're saying the same thing that Peter's saying. And then look at verse 13 says, when they finished, James spoke up. Who's James? See, James, he was the half-brother of Jesus. He was the younger brother of Jesus, born to his parents, Mary and Joseph. And for the longest time, for as long as Jesus was a public minister, even up to the cross where Jesus died, James didn't believe in Jesus. James mocked Jesus. James rejected Jesus. He's like, you're not God. Who do you think you are? You're my brother. You're not the son of God. He didn't believe the things that Jesus was saying, but it was only after Jesus died on the cross and then he rose again and he showed himself physically to James that James finally realized, oh my goodness, you are who you say who you are. 
And all of a sudden, James, his life is turned around. Eventually, at the end of his life, he would give his life as a martyr, dying for the belief that his brother is the son of God. But before that, for 15 years, James, he's now been the leader or one of the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. And this is what he says in this council in Jerusalem. Read it with me. Verse 13 says, when they finished, James spoke up, brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. As it is written, after this, I'll return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I'll rebuild and I'll restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages. See what's going on? Peter, Paul, Barnabas, they all talk about their personal experience, seeing how God is reaching people who are not Jewish. His heart is for them as well. Now, James, he gets up and he looks to something else. He looks to scripture and he quotes from the Old Testament, Amos chapter nine, to show that according to the word of God, according to scripture, God's plan has always been to include Gentiles in his kingdom. And see, what can we learn from this? Applied to your life today, when you're making a big decision, when you're needing to decide on a difficult topic, don't just rely on personal experience, but look to scripture. Don't just rely on what you think and what that person says and what that person experiences, but look to what scripture says about that issue. For example, you know, Pastor Charlene and I, we had a lot of fun this past week. We met up with some of our college and university students here at Thrive, had a really good time with them. We ate a lot of fried chicken. We ate the, you know, the, the homemade noodles of our, the small group leader who made it. Uh, you know, and we sat down. We just had a lot of fun together. And at the same time that night, we spent, I don't know how many hours sitting down, and we went through about 20 questions that these college and university students had about all sorts of topics, stuff like whether it's relationships or, you know, mental health or stress or, you know, abortion or, you know, you know how, do we, how, how do we interact with this kind of community or that kind of community, all these different controversial or big topics. And one of the common themes through that whole night is that when you're trying to figure out a difficult topic, don't just listen to what people say, listen to what God says. Don't just say, oh, this person says this, this person that says, look at what scripture says. Because let me tell you this, what God says about the topic is more important than what anyone else says. And what God says about your decision is more important than what anyone else thinks. And so don't just focus on what people say, but even more focus on what God says. Look to scripture. And some of you well, how do I do that? I'm a new Christian or I'm just exploring Christianity. How do I do it? How do I figure out what God has to say? Well, I've got a few tips for you. One is get a Bible, get a good study Bible. Because you're going to find that at the back of the a good study Bible, there's usually an index with all these different topics that you might be concerned about. And it'll be a shortcut way to get to places in the Bible that speak to that issue that you're concerned about. Other people, they might buy on amazon.ca, maybe like a, like, a, like a promise book from the Bible, where what happens is it's a little book with different topics on you know, hope, fear, depression, whatever it might be. It'll have verses that speak to those topics so that you can just go right to those verses. Another way, a great way, get part of a small group. Be part of a small group of people that are following Jesus together here at church. We want everyone to be part of a small group because you were made to do life together and ask your small group leader or ask other people in a small group, hey, what does the Bible say about this topic? What is that? It's all about focus not on what people say. Focus on what the word of God says. That's what James brings everyone to focus on. This is what scripture says. God's heart is for everyone. And look at Acts 15, 19. What does he say more? Say it with me. It says, it is my judgment, therefore, 
that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. So what's going on? After he shows everybody in the council, this is what scripture says about God's heart for every person on this planet. James offers a practical way to move forward. He says, okay, let's not make it difficult for those Gentile, non-Jewish believers who are turning to God, all right? Instead of insisting that these Gentile believers need to be circumcised, that they have to follow 613 different rules from our law, let's just make it really simple. Let's give them four guidelines by which to interact with Jewish Christians. And so, for example, when you're with a Jewish Christian, maybe don't eat food that's been offered to an idol, or don't eat meat that has, is from an animal that's been strangled, or don't eat the blood of an animal. Why? We'll get that to in just a bit. Or, you know what? Avoid sexual immorality, which is sex outside of marriage. Now, you might be like, why those four? Why those four specifically? Is that because God only cares about what you eat and who you sleep with? Everything else is free for all. You can lie, cheat, and steal as long as you're not eating certain foods and you're only sleeping with the person you're married to. Is that all God cares about? No, no. James isn't laying down moral laws exhaustively for the rest of time. What's he doing? He's giving some practical suggestions on how Jewish believers and Gentile believers can hang out together in peace. And so he gives four suggestions regarding four areas where Jewish Christians are especially sensitive. So for example, he'll say, first, don't eat food offered to idols. Why? It's because Jewish Christians who follow the law of Moses are especially sensitive to anything to do with idolatry. And so if there's food that's been offered to an idol, and sometimes that happens in certain restaurants in Vancouver, food gets offered to an idol, and then it gets served to a customer. If you are a Gentile believer, and you're sitting beside a Jewish, believe, a Jewish Christian believer, and you are eating together, and you are eating food sacrificed to an idol, that Jewish Christian may be a little uncomfortable. They're, uh... Uh, I don't feel comfortable here. So that's the first suggestion. Okay, maybe when you're with Je Je Jewish Christian friends, avoid eating food off the idols. Another one, don't eat blood. Is that since Jews saw blood as representative of life, as representative of God's sacred life, they would avoid eating the blood in an animal. And so if you are a Gentile believer and you have a rare steak, which is full of blood, and you're sitting beside your Jewish brother, Christian brother, Christian sister, and you're eating this, this steak and your blood is kind of going all over and splattering, over, you might make that person feel a little uncomfortable. So James is saying, okay, maybe when you're with each other, maybe refrain from eating that kind of food. And then it says, third, don't eat meat from an animal that's been strangled. Why? We don't know exactly for sure, but maybe it's because the way that that animal's been killed, the, the blood is still inside, and so it raises similar concern about eating blood. And then finally, don't have sex outside of marriage. And you gotta understand the background to that, is that Gentiles, non-Jewish people, especially in Antioch, they lived in a very permissive culture when it came to sex. It's like you sleep with anybody and everybody, and you, know, you could even go to a temple, and you have a temple prostitute there, and you're expected to have sex with that person as a way to somehow give worship to the deity there. And so this was the culture of Antioch. And so because the law of Moses, of course, is much more strict when it comes to set standards when it comes to sex, so James is saying, okay, you know what? Out of respect for the Jewish Christians who are quite sensitive there, you, know, you want to be watching out in this area as well. What's going on? Is that James, he's giving four guidelines. 
that would enable Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians to get along, to come together, to worship under one roof, to worship under one name, Jesus, all in harmony and peace. And see, what is James doing? James is basically inviting both sides to meet in the middle. He's saying, hey, Gentiles, instead of worrying about getting circumcised, instead of worrying about following like over 600 different rules, you know, just focus on these four. That'll really help your Jewish Christian brothers and sisters. And hey, Jewish believers, instead of insisting that your Christian Gentile friends get circumcised and follow everything that you follow, all of your cultural requirements, instead of that, exercise some compassion, show some grace, give them a break, please. They're getting them to meet in the middle. And it just goes to show that for members of a family to get along, sometimes you need to meet in the middle. That if you're under one roof, in one house, under one name, sometimes in order to get along, it's about meeting in the middle. It's about giving and taking. That's how love relationships work. If you believe that, say amen. And see, the council in Jerusalem, they love James's proposal. They're like, you know, that's a great idea. So they send Paul and Barnabas, the pastors of the church in Antioch, back to the church in Antioch with a letter saying, okay, we love you guys. Here's just four things that you want you to keep in mind and, you know, and be blessed. And you know, they send a couple other representatives from Jerusalem to go with Barnabas and Paul. They deliver the letter and the response is awesome. Look at verse 31. It says in verse 31, the people, that is the believers in Antioch, they read it. They were glad for its encouraging message. And so these Christians, these new Gentile Christians in Antioch, they read the message and they're encouraged. They're like, oh my goodness, it's not so confusing anymore. Oh my goodness, praise God, I don't have to get, I don't have to get circumcised. Praise God. Or like, oh, praise God, I don't have to you know, worry about those things. I can just simply follow Jesus and just keep in mind these four things when I'm with my Jewish Christian friends. And see, what I so appreciate about the leaders at this Jews Jerusalem council is that as they discuss this difficult issue, they don't let conformity to their culture take precedence over a simple commitment to Jesus Christ. And see, all that brings us to a really important lesson, which is this. Don't put culture on the same level as Christ. Don't put culture on the same level as Christ. What do I mean by that? Is that sometimes, without us even knowing it, we can confuse the culture that we're used to with following Christ. And we say those two things are exactly the same thing when maybe they're not exactly the same thing. And that's the mistake that the Judean Christians were making. They were saying, hey, Gentile believers, you need to become Jewish if you want to be Christian. You need to get circumcised and follow our laws, our cultural requirements, if you want to follow Jesus. What they were doing, they're putting their culture on the same level as Christ. And see, they were confusing conformity to their culture with simply following Jesus. And that might sound like a really obvious mistake to make, but believe it or not, we can do the same thing today. Maybe not in exactly the same way, but we can do the same thing as well today. For example, how do you know if you are putting your culture on the same level as Christ? How do you know if you're even putting your culture over Christ? Let me give you five clues that happen all the time and see how many of these relate to you. Are you guys ready? Five clues that you might be putting your culture on the same level as Christ. Number one, clue number one, your lifestyle is influenced more by what people around you do and say than what the Bible says. Is that you? So in other words, you know, you allow the example of others and the words of others to affect you more than the teaching of scripture. So for example, your friends love to gossip. And so you gossip, even though the word of God says, do not gossip. 
Or your friends say, you know what? I don't want to go to church today. I just don't feel like it. You're like, oh yeah, me too. When the Bible says, let us not give up meeting together. You know, it's, what are you doing? You're basically taking your culture and what's going on around you and you're putting on the same level as following Jesus. And you're saying, in fact, following my culture is more important than following Jesus. I'm putting my culture over Jesus. Have you done that before? And see, instead of putting your culture over Jesus, we want to put Christ over culture. And sometimes that's easier said than done. Sometimes it takes a lot of discernment and wisdom on that. For example, say you work with a bunch of people who are not Christians and say you're all eating lunch together. You know, do you stop over and go, hey, I'm a Christian. I pray before we eat. Let's bow our heads. No. Do you do that? Is that what you do? What, what's, the, what's the discerning way to deal with that? I'll, let me give you an example. When I was uh, in Taiwan, newly married to my lovely wife, Charlene, one of the things that I found was really interesting was around Chinese New Year, we get together with Charlene's family, and most of Charlene's family is not Christian. And around Chinese New Year, what they do is, in addition to a really good meal, at the end of the night, they would do this. They'd take out a chair, they'd take their deceased grandfather's portrait and put it on the chair. And then one by one, the different aunts and uncles would take their kids and they would do something. They would take incense, light it, and bow before the portrait of this deceased grandfather. And this is a form of ancestor veneration, if you want to call it that. It's something very, very common in Asian culture. And say you're a Christian. What are you supposed to do in a case like this? Each family goes up, and now it's your turn. What are you going to do? So, you know, Charlie and I, we discussed it, we prayed about it, and we said, you know, we don't want to offend the family. We want to respect the family, but at the same time, we also want to make sure that Christ is the one that we're worshiping. So, you know what we decided to do after praying about it, after talking about it, we decided we'd do this, is that we will, when it's our family's time to go up, we would not hold the incense, but what we would do is we would stand at the back and we would bow when everyone's bowing, but we're not praying to this ancestor, we're praying to Jesus. And we're bowing just in respect for this ancestor who went before us. And you know, I'm, I'm pleased with how we dealt with it because it's something where you don't always have to be so offensive in the way that you follow Jesus such that you just, ex- you just re- exacerbate and reinforce that stereotype that you know, you know, you know, Christians are so narrow-minded, Christians are bigots, all that stuff. It's simply how do we best in a wise, discerning, courageous way, honor Christ in a new culture. Amen? Amen. And see, it's about exercising discernment, being courageous, and being wise in the process. Not saying, oh, I'm just going to follow the culture. Who cares about Christ? But saying, how can I honor Christ in my culture? That's clue number one. Clue number two, that you might be putting your culture at the same level as Christ. Clue number two, you only worship God if the method or style of worship conforms to what you're used to. See, in other words, I'll only go to church if my favorite speaker is speaking. But if it's not that favorite speaker, guess what? I'm not going to church. Or you know what? I'll worship and lift my hands if it's a full band playing my favorite songs and the worship leader looks good and I'm going to worship as well. But if it's not my favorite songs, if it's not a full band, if it's just organ and keyboard, so traditional, I'm not going to worship Jesus. You know what's that? That is you putting your culture on the same level as Christ. You're refusing to appreciate different ways to worship Jesus except for those ways that you like and that you're used to and in so doing, what do you do? You're not honoring Christ that way. You're just showing yourself to be a spoiled, picky, spectator-like Christian who's putting your culture over Jesus. You see, we don't want to do that. Number three, clue number three, you can't see the beauty of other cultures. It was really funny when I was in law school 
And in my second year of law school, I remember there was this conference for Christian law students from across Canada, where, you know, if you're a law student going to law school in Canada and you're also Christian, you know, there was this conference for, you know, people like that to come together. I remember it was happening in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University. I drove down from Toronto with one of my buddies. He's Christian. He's also from Armenia. He's Armenian. He grew up Armenian, you know, ate Armenian food, all that stuff. And then we would be driving down to this conference and we met up with, you know, other Christian law students there. And it was, like the United, it was like the United Nations, really. It was like, you know, like Koreans, you know, Japanese, Hungarians, Bolivians. It was, and so I remember we were like this big group going to a Japanese restaurant for dinner. I can never forget the look on my Armenian Christian friend's face when he put, they put some salmon maki in front of him. It was the first time he'd ever seen salmon maki before. And it was like, oh, oh, like, and I was like, can you grow up, please? It's sushi. It's just sushi. And, it's like, and he, just, he just couldn't, he couldn't think. He just, he just was so used to eating his own culture's food that he, he just had this look of disgust on his face. He's like, just eat it. It tastes good. It's sushi. It's good for you. And, and, and so he finally ate it and stuff. But I was like, oh my goodness. Like, like I, I hope you can appreciate the beauty of other cultures because who doesn't love sushi? Amen. Right? But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Is why do I mention that? Why do I mention that? Because it sounds funny. It sounds a little trivial. But the fact is, that when we fail to appreciate the beauty of other cultures and we still think we're following Christ, atrocious and awful things can happen. For example, all the talk about residential schools over the past couple of years, you know what happened there? Is that you've got the Canadian federal government where instead of seeing the beauty of the indigenous cultures back in the 1800s, they said, you know, these indigenous peoples, they're barbaric, they're godless, they're ruthless. They need to be civilized. We're going to turn them into civilized British subjects. We're going to turn them into Christians. And they got churches involved, Anglican churches, Catholic churches, to, to raise up these residential schools where awful abuse took place, where their you know, human rights and their culture were stripped away from them. Their hair was cut short. Their names were changed. They were indoctrinated by all this stuff. And that's not the kingdom of God. That is something else. And let me tell you this, in eradicating their culture, they killed Christ in the process. And that's what happens when we fail to appreciate the beauty of other cultures, where we think my culture is better than your culture. You know, my country is better than your country. And we just kind of say, oh yeah, you know what? You have to get rid of yours and just insist on mine. That's what we do when we put culture over Christ. That's clue number three. Do you do that in your own small way? Clue number four, you don't reach out to anyone new or different from you. For example, you're at church, but then the only time you spend with anybody is people that you already know, people that you're already familiar with, people that you're already comfortable with. And see, I'm not saying that it's wrong to have friends who are like you or that, you know, it's wrong to have friends and want to hang out with them. But my question for you is this, how big is your heart for people who are new and people who are different from you? You know, we have a saying here at Thrive, which is that welcoming is not just what we do, it's who we are. In other words, when you're here at Thrive Church, if you call Thrive your home church, then guess what? Even if you're not formally serving today, even if there's no lanyard around your neck, guess what? You are a host for every single person here who's new to our church family. Amen. 
And what that means is I want you, when you're here at Thrive, not just to have your eyes out for the people that you already know, especially I want you to have your radar up for people that you've never met before and people who might be different from you. I want you to go and have your radar up for them and not just have your radar up for them, but reach out to them. Cross an aisle, cross a row, go across the other side of the room and make them feel like they are truly welcome here because we all know what it feels like to be not welcome in a new place because that's the heart of God. That's Jesus's love for us. He would cross the other side of eternity just to find us who are so different from him. And if you're not able to do that, then let me ask you this. How big is your heart for people different from you? Or are you just living in a bubble where it's all about my friends and you know, my culture and what I'm used to? Here it is. It's time for a new heart for a new horizon. Realize that God's heart is bigger than your bubble. Learn with God's love to reach out to people who might not be the same as you. If you believe that, would you give God some praise? Let me know that you're with me on that. Amen. That's clue number four. You don't really reach out to anyone different or new. And number five, you reject the claims of Christianity based on where you think Christianity comes from. You know, many years ago, I was part of a team that went to China to teach English to working professionals and university students in China. And our goal was, because you're not allowed to share your faith publicly, you can't like start a church there, you know, you can't start a service and preach that way. But what you can do is you can, you know, share your faith privately in the context of friendships. And so what we wanted to do as a team was we wanted to provide the best English classes that there are for people who are working professionals and university students in China. And we would do our best to teach these classes. And the pros of teaching these classes, hopefully, you know, see that, let them see that they can trust us and win their credibility. And in the, in the process, as we get to know them, as we become friends with them, as we hang out with them, that there will be hopefully opportunities for us to share what we believe about Jesus. And amazingly, we found that you know, a number of people, so many different people, they heard about Jesus for the first time and they received Jesus into their lives. It was an incredible time. And I remember there was one time, it was like the last day of the term and there's a bunch of these students in one room and they're with my friend, one of my teammates, and he's got this guitar and he's singing these Christian songs that he's sharing with everybody and they're singing along, they really enjoy them. And I remember there's this one young man in his 20s and he's kind of standing off to the side, kind of with his arms folded, looking at what's happening. You could tell he was in really deep thought. And I, I talked to this guy before. He was actually one of our students, smart guy. Uh, he was a member of the communist party, like a youth member. And, you know, he, you could tell he was really in deep thought about what was going on. And, you know, I, I took him to the side and said, hey, how, how you doing, man? And he's like, you know what, like, can you tell me this message again about Jesus? And I was like, yeah, all right. Like, it's about how God loves everyone. God made everyone for a relationship with him. He sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins so that it's not about how we have to get to God. It's how God reached out to us and loved us. And all we need to do is receive the forgiveness that Jesus paid on the cross for us. And he's like, he nodded. The next day, he, or, and later on he said, can you meet me tomorrow? So we met for breakfast the next day at this run restaurant. And I don't remember where we were. I don't remember what we ate. But I remember what he said to me at that breakfast table. He said, JB, this message about Jesus is so attractive to me. It's so powerful. I've never heard anything like this in my life. I've grown up believing there is no God. But then, you know, over the past few weeks, it's like you guys have shown me something I've never seen before. And it's a really attractive, powerful message about how Jesus died for us, died for me. But there's a problem. I'm Chinese. 
and Christianity is a Western concept. Therefore, as a Chinese, I can never accept Christianity. And then he walked away and I never heard from him again. And you know, I, I sometimes look back at that conversation and I think to myself, what would I have said to him if I had the opportunity to do so? You know what I would wanna to say to him? I'd wanna to say to him that I hear you, that you're not alone, that a lot of people have that kind of concern. But what I'd also want him to know and I want you to know if you have the same similar kind of question is that Christianity is not as Western as you might think it is. Is that Christian didn't even originate in the West. It was a movement that started in the Middle East among Jewish people. Jesus is Jewish. And there is in fact evidence to suggest that Christianity made it all the way to ancient China around the same time that it ever got to Western countries like Spain or France or England. In fact, if you look at Christians today, you know where most of the Christians in the world are today? They're not in Canada. They're not in the US. They're not in Europe. You know where they are? They're in Asia. They're in Africa. They're in South America. And see, here's the thing. So Christianity is not nearly as Western as you think it is. But there's also another point. Is that even if it is from the West, even if I granted you that, what does it matter as long as it works? See, if I'm sick, I don't care if the medicine you give me is Chinese medicine or Irish medicine or Indian medicine or Australian medicine. I don't care where it's from as long as it can cure my sickness. And if you reject an idea because you simply don't like where it comes from, that's what philosophers today call an ad hominem fallacy. That's where you take an irrelevant reason to reject a statement on truth. It's almost like a drunk man. Say a drunk man were to come up to you and with slurring speech, he stumbled to you. You know, one plus one is two. And he goes away. And imagine he says that to you. What if you were to do this? Because that man is drunk, I reject the statement he made as false and untrue. Does that make any sense? No, it doesn't. One plus one is true, whether the person who says it to you is drunk or not. See, don't reject an idea just because you don't like where it comes from. You look at the idea based on its merit. And because if it's true and if it works, it doesn't matter where it comes from. If you believe that, say amen. And see, with that in mind, maybe you came to faith in Christ in an environment, a culture, a church, where maybe a leader failed in a big public way. And because of that, you're kind of questioning your own faith now. Kind of like, oh man, if he made that mistake, then my, my, my faith must be not legit. And, and you question yourself there. Or, or maybe you're here and you're like, I can never be a Christian. Because look at my, the Christians I know, they're all hypocrites. You know what? Let me tell you this. If you hate hypocrisy, guess what? Jesus hates hypocrisy even more than you do. In fact, he speaks against hypocrisy more than anyone else in the Bible. And see, the fact is, not everyone who claims to be a Christian is actually Christian. There's a lot of people, a lot of things that are done in the name of Christianity that are the absolute opposite from what Jesus would ever do. And see, keep this in mind. If the message of Christianity is that we are all sinners who need a savior, if the door to church is open to anyone and everyone, and the message is no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, God loves you, and there's grace available for you, then who should you expect to be in our churches? Are they perfect people who have it all together? No, the church is not a country club for perfect people. It's a hospital for broken people and different stages of maturity, different stages in their spiritual walk with God. And so don't be so shocked and surprised when someone who's a Christian fails in some kind of way because they're broken just like you. 
And see, that's what the message of Christianity is. And see, instead of judging Christianity based on some fallible, imperfect, immature, even fake follower of Jesus, look at Christianity on its merits. And in particular, look at Jesus. Who is Jesus? Who did he say he is? What did he do? Because if the foundation of our hope in Jesus is Jesus himself and not anyone else, then why are you focusing on someone else? Focus on Jesus, amen? Don't put your culture on the same level as Christ. Oh, but JB, no, I, I don't wanna be seen as abandoning my culture or betraying my family. Let me tell you this. Following Jesus doesn't require that you abandon your culture or that you betray your family. It's only in very specific incidents where you find that what your culture is telling you to do is running directly counter to what the Bible is telling you to do. In those cases, you need to make a choice. Am I gonna follow my culture or follow Jesus? But fortunately, in the great majority of situations, you don't have to worry about that because Christianity was never meant to be tied to any one culture. It was meant to be for people of every culture, every kind of culture, every language, every every country, every color, every ethnicity. You know, I'm so thankful for the cultures that I grew up in where I learned about Jesus, the churches that I grew up in, the countries where I've been able to live. But I also have to let you know this, there's a certain degree to which we need to separate the culture where we learned Christ from Christ himself because they're not necessarily the same thing. Colossians 3.11 says it this way. This is our last verse for today. Would you read it with a big loud voice? What does it say? It says, in this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. See, don't put culture over Christ. Put Christ over the culture in wise, discerning, courageous ways. Because when we place our culture over Christ, three things, three problems arise. One is we confuse the gospel message. We make it harder for people to understand what following Jesus is all about. You know, number two, we fail to appreciate the different beautiful ways that people can follow Jesus in different cultures. We're not meant to be unicultural. We're meant to be multicultural in the kingdom of God. And you know, we also frustrate and test God's heart when we add all these other things from our culture to think that is what following Jesus is all about. But the message of Acts 15 is that the kingdom of God is not about cultural imperialism. It's not about colonialism. It's not, oh, this culture is better than cult that culture, and so that culture needs to be taken over. No, the kingdom of God is where there are many cultures, but one king, his name is Jesus. Amen. Amen. Oh, come on, would you give God some praise in this place together right now? So don't put culture over Christ. Put Christ over the culture. See, what did we learn today? Well, we learned a number of things from Acts 15. The first thing we learned is don't quarantine your decision-making process. Seek good advice when you're making a big decision. Maybe that's what you need to hang on to today. Number two, use scripture to check what you feel and what you experience. Don't just think about what you think or what other people say, but look at what God says. Number three, don't make it difficult for people around you to turn to God. That's what we call here at Thrive, having an unchurched heart is that the language we use, the words we use, you know, you know, through our words, our actions, our example, we want to make it easy for people to understand the love of God. That's called having an unchurched heart. Number four, realize that Christianity doesn't belong to any one culture, but it's for people of every culture. 
Number five, don't place culture over Christ, but place Christ over the culture. And whenever there is a conflict between following Jesus and following the culture, in the most wisest, discerning, courageous way you can, follow Jesus. Put Jesus over the culture. Finally, remember it is only through the grace, the undeserved kindness of Jesus that we are saved. Let's all stand. As we close our service today, I hope this message has been helpful for you. And if you're here and you're listening to this message and you realize that maybe this is your first time in church or never been to church before, but you realize today that you need forgiveness from God for sin. You realize today that you're a sinner who needs a savior. And you realize today the message of Acts 15, which is that there's nothing we can do to earn our way to God, but the good news is we don't have to because God loves you with an unconditional love. He sent Jesus Christ to pay for your sins on the cross so that you could be forgiven. If you've never opened up your heart to receive God's forgiveness expressed through Jesus Christ, we want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. And so with every head bowed, with every eye closed, we want to give you an opportunity to respond to God. This is not about your neighbor. This is about you and God. And if you realize today that you are a sinner who needs a savior. You realize today that your sin separates you from God, but you want to ask Jesus Christ to bridge that gap and to forgive your sins. Then I want to encourage you, those of you on site, just to raise your hand to God right now. Let the height of your hands just be your honest way of looking to God and saying, God, I need you. Jesus, I need you. I need your forgiveness. Would you hold your hand high up? And those of you online, I encourage you to click the link that's in your chat room. It's going to take you to a little prayer that we're going to pray together right now. In fact, I encourage those of you who've prayed this prayer before to pray it with those who are praying for the first time. Those of you on site, if you want to pray this prayer, why don't you lift your hand high. One of our ushers might give you a little card with a prayer on it that you can pray together with us right now. And we're just going to say this out loud together as a way to express our need for Jesus to be our Savior. Why don't you pray this with me from your heart right now. Say, Dear Jesus, thank you that because you love me, you died on the cross to pay for my sins. You rose again to give me life. Today, I open up my heart and I ask you, please forgive me of all my sins and fill me with your Holy Spirit. I place my trust not in what I do, but in what you've done for me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, praise God. If you prayed that prayer and you meant that prayer, then the Bible says you are forgiven of your sins. You are a child of God. And just as Peter says in Acts chapter 2, he says, believe and be baptized. And so you've done the first part. You believe in Jesus. I encourage you to take that next step and get baptized. Baptism is not a graduation. Baptism is a beginning. It's you simply saying, yes, I prayed a prayer to receive Jesus into my life. And I thank Jesus that he died on the cross for me. Thus, I can be forgiven of my sins. If that's you, you prayed that prayer just now, we encourage you to get baptized. Go to mythought.info, press the baptism button. We'd love to have you with that next step in your relationship with God. A big congratulations to you. Good morning, Thrive. We're so excited to see you all today. My name is Christine, and I hope you had a fantastic time today here at Thrive. Before we end off, let's jump into some announcements and take a look at what's coming up here at Thrive. If this is your first time joining us, we want to show you how much we appreciate you being here today by giving you a Thrive stainless steel water bottle. Simply scan the QR code at the back of your seat or visit mythrive.info and click New to Thrive to fill out the Connect card. If you joined us online, we'll mail you the gift as soon as possible. 
And if you're here with us today at Lipont Place, please drop by the Welcome Center by the exit door after the service to pick up your gift. Once again, thanks so much for worshiping with us today. If you're looking for a community to pray and to worship together, we want to invite you to join us over Zoom every Tuesday at 8.30 p.m. You can find the Zoom link available at mythrive.info. Feel free to join us whenever and wherever you are. If you haven't already, we want to encourage you to get plugged in at Thrive by joining a small group or by being part of a serving team. This is the best way to meet new friends and to develop meaningful relationships with other drivers. To sign up, visit mythrive.info. All right, so that concludes our announcements today. If you believe in the mission of Thrive and would like to contribute towards it, I highly encourage you to head on over to mythrive.info and click online giving. Thank you so, so much for joining us today. Enjoy the rest of the week. And I'll see you all next week online and on site at Lee Pond Place. See you soon.